Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I am delighted to have on the show with us today, Dr. Ann Klebanski, president and CEO of Mass General Brigham, a Boston-based integrated healthcare system. And you are the first female CEO to be in this role. I'll just go back to 2019 when I was named the first female CEO of Mass General Brigham. And one of the things I was asked is, how do you feel about that? And I said, you know, I'm looking forward to the time when the first female CEO or the first female anything doesn't cause attention because it's just part of what we all are. Part of it is we have women, we have diverse leadership. We just don't have to declare it as a victory every time someone is announced. So absolutely thrilled to be in this role and to be the first female CEO of Mass General Brigham. But again, I'm looking forward to a time where there are many women in leadership roles. So it just becomes part of the normal environment we live and work in. And to that, I want to say amen. Thank you. I got to where I am by the mentoring from people who went before me, both good women and good men. And I assume similar for you. Yes, I think it's true. I've, I've had a number of mentors over time. We, we spend a lot of time talking about mentors and sponsors, those people who provide mentorship, those people who, in addition, or maybe sometimes not in addition, can open doors, can make things happen, can recognize, can help develop opportunities for people. So I've had many of those. I've learned from many of those people. I guess two things might be interesting to highlight. The first thing is mentoring can come from very unexpected places. So I think many of the traditional mentors, the pairing, for example, in academic medicine of academics to academics, leader to leader, those things are very important. But, you know, often it's the person you just meet who's doing something very different, who really has a perspective, an objective perspective that they can give you, which is very important. And I think related to that is a number of mentors I've had have been from out of the current job that I'm in. They've been people from the past. I'll just highlight one person who I've mentioned a number of times. When I was in college and I was an English major, I spent a period of time with Elizabeth Hartwick, who was one of the founding members of the New York Review of Books. And she talked a lot about careers. And of course, as a college student, the concept of careers and jobs and all of these things they're not terribly meaningful. They start to develop meaning over time. But there were a number of people who we had discussions about in terms of their professions and what they would do. I was interested in medicine. And the one thing she said was, your profession is not your career. And I've, I've quoted that before, but I think it's just a very meaningful statement because a profession is something you've trained for. It could be a physician, it could be a journalist, it could be anything. But your career is the individual journey that you're on. The career is that journey that takes you to different places, provides you with new opportunities. And that really is a career. So a little bit of wisdom I've had in the past from previous mentors. So how did you go from English major to physician to CEO? Because that had to be a fairly interesting journey. When I was in uh, college, again, I was an English major. Mainly, I focused on uh, British poetry. I was very, very interested in poetry. I liked the discipline of really creating a simple, concise piece from many, many complex thoughts, emotions, putting them together in a very simple form. 
that can be interpreted in many different ways, depending on who you are, where you are. I also was very interested in chemistry, very interested in chemistry, particularly inorganic chemistry. I like the periodic table, the simplicity of that, the element organization, how you could form different interactions. Those two themes, if you will, were always very much on my mind. As I started to think more about this connection between chemistry and behavior and emotion and became really interested in the biology of the human body, particularly when it came to the brain, the concept of complex systems coming together and how that really very much impacted human health became a theme of interest to me. So in thinking about what I was going to do, I, I thought about a lot of different things, getting a PhD in English, maybe becoming a judge, lots of different things. But when I started to really think about how I could put it together in a way that made sense to me, going to medical school really was able to bring a lot of those things together, the science, the complexity of systems, the ability to have an impact on people, all of those things coming together really drove me excited me about a career in medicine. When I got to medical school, you know, medical school is so many different disciplines, so many different things. I was very much drawn to the field of endocrinology and hormones. Again, I was interested in the brain and these connectivities between the brain, hormone systems, how incredibly complex things all could come together. So fairly early on, I thought a lot more about this relationship between the brain and the endocrine system. And then when I came to Boston to train in neuroendocrinology became really the focus of my interests. A lot of my interests, I would say, in medicine, and this is still very much true today, were very much focused on patients. What's the impact on a patient? How do you put together a lot of very complex things, simplify them, mm -hmm. and be able to impact the health of people, the health of patients? So neuroendocrinology is a very complex field. It is multiple complex hormone systems that are very, very carefully orchestrated. And their interactions between the brain, the hormone system, lots of organs and behaviors all kind of came together. What I liked about it was incredibly complex systems that had to be simplified. This gets back to sort of thinking about poetry and chemistry, how do you simplify those systems to bring them to order, to bring them to order so that you can actually treat a patient, how you can actually impact someone's health? As I kept going along, I really became interested in research. And the thing I would flag is the impact on individual patients very much governed my thinking about where I wanted to be in healthcare, that one-on-one -on -one interaction that positive interaction you can have on a patient. When I started doing research, what was so appealing to me was the ability or having the ability to have a research finding. And then that finding could actually impact the health of many, 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 many people. And that scaling of effect, that scalability, that to me was a very powerful concept Instead of having an effect, being able to help one person, a successful research program, a finding, a scientific advance, a new therapy, a new way of looking at things, you can actually have a broad, broad impact on many, many thousands or hundreds or thousands of more patients. 
And so that scalability was very appealing to me. As I kept going on in my work, I was attracted to doing things that were different. You know, people said, well, you know, if you're a neuroendocrine, you know, this is the next step in your career, and then you should do this, and then you should do that. And I saw a lot of people who were very much restricted in choices because of the expectation that this would be the next step in their career. And there was something about that that I thought was a bit stultifying. So when people would say, have you considered doing this position? And and there were a number of positions along the way. Often people would say, you don't want to do that. The next step in your career is supposed to be that. And I would think, well, maybe not. Let's try. Let's do something different. Let's do things in a different way. That is a philosophy that's really very much embedded in research, but it's not one that's the particular lived experience in people's careers. So I was happy to look at different things. This opportunity to be a CEO came after about eight years as being the chief academic officer across Mass General Brigham. And that, to me, was a very exciting way of taking all of the work that I had done in science, in research, in training, and scaling it to have a huge and bigger impact on the overall science, research, innovation across the system. The opportunity to be CEO was really taking so much of that interest in scalability and impact on patients and then being able to do it in a much, much broader way. We talk often about leadership and the mind of the scientist, that as the world gets more complex, Mm -hmm. you can't go to best practice from five years ago and solve the problem the way we used to. Mm -hmm. Many of them, those solutions, while brilliant at their time, no longer brilliant. And so it sounds like head of research into a CEO role in the way we talk about leadership is a very useful next step. And yet I imagine you had many people in place who were uncomfortable with the research thinking in running an organization because you're supposed to have answers and tell us what to do. So it's interesting because it brings together uh, a lot of themes here that are so important. You know, number one is the narrative that we've always done it this way, and therefore we need to continue to do it this way, can be a very powerful disincentive for change. If you're thinking about things from a research perspective, you're always thinking about where are you going and why are you going there? You know, what are the questions you're trying to answer? What are the teams around you you need to do to confront problems? So embedded in all of research and innovation is bringing a multidisciplinary voice. You have to have a multidisciplinary voice. You have to have different people from different backgrounds. You could have in science someone who's a chemist, someone who's a biologist, someone who's an endocrinologist, someone who's a geriatrician. You can do all of this. But fundamentally, you're bringing together teams of people with different expertise, different voices, and different perspectives. And have them share a common vision. So I think one of the really first things in becoming CEO is to try and create what that common vision was. Where are we going as a healthcare system? And then I'll get a bit to your question about how do you think differently and what are those disruptors that really force people into thinking in a different way about change? So, you know, for us, it was how do we take this Mass General Brigham, which at the time was Partners Healthcare. So it was a number of very, very recognized individual institutions. We had Mass General Hospital, Brigham and Women's Hospital, 
these three renowned specialty hospitals, McLean Psychiatry, Mass Eye and Ear, Spalding Rehabilitation, these community hospitals, urgent care, lots of different things in ambulatory sites and insurance company, all of these things. How do we take all of these things together and say, what is it we're trying to do here? That is where it was, how do we gather all of these powerful entities, expertise, hospital, everyone together to really create the integrated academic healthcare system of the future with patients at the center. So this is where I wanted everyone to come together to think through. How do we deliver care as a single integrated system that leverages the best of everything, the capabilities, the expertise, focusing on patients to enable patients to access the system, to navigate the system, so that this whole full continuum of care that we provided was accessible to patients. If you think about this system too, it's research, it's innovation, it's that highly specialized tertiary quaternary care that helps define us. So it's sustaining that excellence in research, innovation, teaching, complex care. What are those things that bring people to the system? And how do we best deliver that care that's informed by that research and innovation? Don't splinter these capabilities. Put them all together to create something bigger than what we are. And I think it was also thinking, designing, and acting from the patient back. You have to focus on the value, the outcomes, the quality. Think back from the patient. And again, it's the future thinking here. How do we shape the treatments, the procedure, the delivery of the future? We have to reshape ourselves, and they have to be done because we all believe in these principles of what it is we're all trying to achieve. Again, it's patient access, it's navigation, it's retention. At a time when patient care has to be moving out of the hospital, there's always a place in the hospital for complex care for those patients who need to be hospitalized. The basic, secondary, primary care needs to be delivered closer to home. It needs to be more affordable. We need to be thinking about equity in clinical outcomes. So all of these things need to be happening. But I think the most important thing is getting all these people in all these institutions together and collectively bringing the leadership together and say, where is it that we're going and why? And then you can make a plan around it as opposed to saying, here's your plan. When it comes to that, how does the scientific thinking about what's your hypothesis, where do you want to go, how do you need to do it, who do you bring together, I think that's where all of this comes through. And I would also just say that COVID-19, during that COVID pandemic, that's where everything was called into question. So bringing together people in traditional ways, spending years and years getting to where you want to go. Everything changed overnight during COVID. In a way, it seemed like that was the accelerator, especially in healthcare, because you had to work remotely. Now, certainly when someone's having a surgical procedure, you don't work remotely. Mm -hmm. But for many instances, the financial reimbursement changed. Yes. Doctors learned to function whether or not they liked it. Yes. Because otherwise, people weren't going to get the care they needed. Exactly. Critical care, someone navigating cancer or a heart attack or some of these things that you can't just put it off for a year. 
from the human change perspective, people were willing to suspend what they thought was required. For some, that suspension was brief. For others, it was a permanent change in point of view. Marina, I think what you've said is 100% true, which is you have this incredible disruptor, COVID. And just going back to those days, what that did for everyone and how it did really accelerate so many of these things that had to be accelerated during that crisis. But the really critical thing is how many of those things have now endured and should be promoted as the way healthcare will be delivered now and into the future? Those are really the critical points. Again, during COVID, there we were, all of these hospitals, suddenly with many, 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 many patients coming to us with an unknown disease, unknown treatments, flooding the hospitals, dying, fear everywhere, not enough PPE, not enough ventilators, not enough of a lot, and an extraordinarily stressed staff. Things happen so quickly that people said would never happen before. And you, you mentioned one of them. I mean, I'll just start with the dashboards and thinking about how we run these hospitals. The first thing that happened is what I needed to know very quickly is where are the thousands of beds that we have? What's available in all the hospitals put together? What's available? What's open? What's available in an ICU? Where are the ventilators? Where are the people? And those things, these kind of dashboards, people said, well, you know, it takes a long time to develop these. We had this up and running in a week because we had to. So that's the singular force of having everyone come together with purpose. And the single driving, galvanizing force during that whole time was saving the lives of people. And that brought everyone together. And people were willing to suspend many, many things. I don't think we can do this and this will require too much change because that force is what drove everything together. The virtual care was phenomenal. We had a few thousand visits before then with some reluctant acceptance. We went to over 2 million visits in 2021, over 2 million visits, just like that. And people came together and they said, this is the only way we can deliver care. But you know, what we learned is that the tools to deliver this care were always there. People said, well, everyone must have been developing new technology. The tools were always there. It was the implementation. It was the use of those tools that had to be because they had to be. So right now, over 80, 85% of all behavioral health care is being done virtually. And it's been incredible. Because again, if you think about it from the point of view of a patient, and you've said this, there are patients who need to be seen. They need to come to a physical place and be seen and examined. But there are so many patients, whether it's in behavioral health, whether it's in many, many things, chronic disease management, a virtual care visit can be very, very profound and make life easier. People don't need to take a day off from work, drive many miles, find childcare, elder care. So it is very patient-centered. And what we're seeing, again, is more and more care shifting virtually and more and more care shifting into the home. So we are seeing this, and it's timely, and it has to happen. It seems like one of the enablers that was in place is the back-end healthcare management EPIC or whatever system you're using. 
the ability of the patient. I just recently joined a new medical practice and I'm able to communicate and read all the stuff. I've never looked at so many medical tests in my life because they all just keep popping into my email box now. You may not want people like me reading my results, but it allows me to be part of the process in a productive way so that I'm not also abdicating my care. That's right. I own being engaged in staying well, mm -hmm. not looking to doctor whomever to fix me once I've mistreated my biology. The concept here that you're talking about is really the integration of the patient and the care team. We need to look at, again, this has to be very patient-focused. What does the individual patient need? How do they have access to the healthcare system? So for some patients, it will be scheduling appointments online. For some patients, should be for many patients, if not all patients, it's actually reading through the notes, understanding what's happened. And I think also it's the virtual reach out. So we've introduced a virtual urgent care now. So patients can get into the portal and they can actually set up a virtual care visit that day, sometimes within minutes, and pick a provider. And they have a provider. It may not be part of their ordinary care team. Could be a weekend, could be whenever, but you can see someone. And then there are also physical urgent care. So all of these things are meant to basically take much better care of patients and to also leave the hospitals, the emergency departments. They're there for people who really need to be there. These are other ways of delivering care. And I think in the future, we're going to see a lot more of this because then think about it. It's all the continuum of care. How do you reach people on a continuous basis, which is what you're talking about, that continuous engagement? How do you deal with chronic disease management? How do you deal with patients who have an issue that needs to be resolved before it gets delayed, 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 and then they wind up coming into the emergency departments? How do you think about all of that in a very different way? So care begins in the home and it ends in the home. And one of the things we're working very hard on, again, is implementation of digital tools and really the digital healthcare platform so people can use these for better access and also to navigate around the system. You get into the system. Where do you need to go? What place is available to you? What's at home? What's lower cost of care? All of these things are very much top of mind. We're spending a lot of time on hospital at home, and that will free up capacity at our hospitals. I think we're all aware of this, but I think it's always worth flagging. It is a real crisis right now in healthcare. People make a lot of assumptions about healthcare systems and their survival. And I think that's because healthcare systems are always counted on. Healthcare systems were counted on during COVID, get us through the pandemic, take care of people. We never close. All of these things are true. But the capacity challenges are breathtaking. We do not have any room. There is no room. Capacity is constrained everywhere in the country. So it's a capacity challenge. It's an access challenge. It's an equity challenge. And all of these things come together. Across Mass General Brigham, it's a very typical day that we'll have over 200 patients who cannot get into a bed or sitting in the emergency department waiting for a bed. There is no capacity, and that is incredibly hard. We do not have capacity because there are not enough hospital beds. There are not enough outpatient centers. 
And fundamentally, we have so much delayed care. There are so many patients who are coming in sicker. They've delayed care. They're coming in with more advanced cancer. All of these patients have to be taken care of. So in general, we're always worried about an older, sicker population with limited access. We're really seeing that escalate now. These are huge issues in addition to the enormous workforce shortage that I know you've heard about. We've talked a lot in so many different ways about the great resignation. Many people have left the workforce, but there is a fundamental loss in those key people who keep healthcare systems going. So that's just a continuing challenge that we all have to face. So I want to tie it back to your question about change and how you have changed and the things that force change. And sometimes it's a pandemic, but sometimes it's also the realities of healthcare delivery. Because if you are going to focus on patients, which is where the focus needs to be, we need to adapt and be more nimble in thinking about new ways to approach healthcare to take care of those patients who need to be taken care of. For folks who live in rural areas, they may not have a healthcare system within 100 miles. Yes. And when you're sick, you don't want to be driving two hours or longer. Yes. Some people don't have reliable transportation. To get on a bus when you're sick, first of all, it's just not advisable. And so making this accessible, costs get covered differently. <laughs> we don't have the same issue of access that right now, especially people in lower socioeconomic categories, are going to be the ones to show up in the emergency room because they've deferred care in some cases. And the system doesn't seem easy to navigate. Exactly. So, you know, you're highlighting navigation, highlighting access. I do want to put together the equity and the access and the navigation because I think they are very, very, very much interrelated. If I, for example, even think about virtual care, there are many communities where language is an issue. So, for example, one of the things that you see in electronic medical records is everything's in English. Okay, well, that doesn't work if your primary language is not English. So we have now worked very hard to have languages, about six languages, different things that are appearing so that people who do not have English as their primary language can actually access the system and understand how to best address their healthcare needs. So that's an important thing. The digital divide is important. You mentioned people who live out in rural communities. Absolutely true. But we have seen in many of the communities that we serve, they don't have broadband access. They don't have the devices. So even in some degree of proximity to a city or a healthcare system, you may not have that access. So we have really worked on bringing healthcare out to the community. Mobile vans. We did this during COVID in terms of vaccines and care and PPE and all of that stuff is moving care to where the patients are. This is really a very important thing that we're thinking about and doing in terms of the equity issue. The community hospitals, the rural hospitals, all hospitals have a challenge. You have to think about what it is that's needed in a community. What does the community need? Does every hospital need a full service hospital? Could be yes, could be no could be something different. So thinking about the community needs, what is needed in that community, partnering with community groups, that's absolutely essential. And these are all the kinds of things that have to be done. 
if you can get beyond some of that digital divide, if you can give out devices, which we've done, you can actually deliver a lot of care virtually, but that doesn't help those people who need to come in for delivering a baby, an acute MI. So these are the kinds of challenges we all need to be thinking about. The equity part of this, we've given a lot of thought to. We have a very broad program now that's about two years old called United Against Racism. And that really has a number of different pillars in it. One is community care and equity. The other is looking at medicine through a lens where we can really look at what are those factors which have been disadvantaged or highlighted that need to be identified. And the other is really working with people. How do we create an environment within healthcare that is welcoming, that is diverse, starting from the trustees to our leadership group throughout the organization so we can really create that overall equity that we really need in healthcare? It's multidimensional. You have to partner and work with communities. That's just a sort of a small example of some of the work that absolutely has to be done to create access and, frankly, health equity. It seems like a daunting challenge in conjunction with just, as you mentioned, not enough beds. Yeah. And I say basic. The cost of building a hospital that has enough beds is not basic. It's huge. The costs are enormous. I think I would speak for many other leaders of healthcare systems around the corner and around the state and around the country in saying that the cost of delivering care continues to escalate. You know, for us, about 60% plus of our overall costs are wages. So, you know, if you look at inflation, you look at supply chain, you look at all the things that are going on, our costs are skyrocketing. And our costs, costs of most of these not-for-profit healthcare systems and even the for-profit healthcare systems are not covered by the revenue. And in addition to that, you know, I mentioned early on, we are an academic medical center. We are an academic healthcare system. So as a not-for-profit, those quote-unquote profits that we make have to go back into mission. They have to go back for sustaining all of the things we do, high-quality care, that tertiary quaternary care that's so expensive, that's tech-enabled, all of the research that we support, all of the innovation all of the service to community, all of that has to come from somewhere. So these are fundamental threats to all of the healthcare systems around the country. And I just want to particularly note for academic healthcare systems, because that investment in research, in scientists, in innovation, those are the cures for tomorrow. Those are the diagnostics that are going to be able to allow us to diagnose so many things that we can't diagnose now. Those are the new technologies. That's where the future of medicine is. So we have to do that and at the same time, lower the cost of care, move patients out into settings that are closer to home, make care more accessible and less expensive. All these things have to be done and they have to be done in parallel. And it sounds like one of the key pieces is moving care earlier in the process so I don't become chronic. If I have prediabetes, catch me early, help me change my habits, then I don't require insulin every day and, and monitoring and the expense of all of the things that come from diabetes. And that's, a, I want to say, a simple one. That's not even one of the more complex ones. But you are 100% right on that. And whether it's diabetes, whether it's any chronic ailment, if, well, no matter what it is, 
I'll go back to that continuum of care. If you have access and think about the total health of a person and not just what happens when you're ill, there's a lot of focus on the immediate acute event. That's where the focus is. If we focus much more broadly on that continuum of care, how we best provide that care, to your point, early on in the home, whether it's virtual, whether it's around the corner, before one gets sick enough to come to the emergency department, that's where you've made an enormous difference in the health of people. I just will look at a real crisis in behavioral health. Not enough psych beds, not enough psychiatric beds anywhere. Mass General Brigham, we have over 600 beds that are dedicated to psychiatry that we staff. It's probably about 20% of the total psychiatric beds in the state of Massachusetts. So many systems are pulling away from this. We're leaning in on this. And patients with acute psychiatric illness, adults, children, all over the EDs, sitting in the EDs for days, no matter how many hospital beds you put up, they're immediately full. To get to that point, if you're watching this early, if you were diagnosing people early, if you were monitoring them as part of everything that you're doing over time, you don't have to wait until someone has a psychotic break and comes into the emergency department. What is true for all of the other things that we're talking about is just so true for behavioral health and recognizing that and putting the systems in place that will enable us to prevent those acute emergencies from happening. They don't happen overnight. So many of the things, no matter what they are, whether they're heart conditions, whether they're psychiatric illness, it's unusual for something to occur overnight. There's typically a history that has not been recognized, that hasn't been dealt with. So this is really what we need to be doing. Thank you for leaning into the, especially psychiatric care. I have several friends who are bipolar. Most of them are well-treated and live lives that are as normal as humans live. But one terminated his life, didn't get the care he needed consistently, and ended up in inpatient jail, emergency rooms, jail again. It just, some of these are so difficult to manage. They're complex illnesses. Inpatient care is just required in some cases. It just is a part of the nature of the illness for some people. Absolutely. And being able to, again, take care of people so that they can lead healthy lives. They can get the access to the care they need. They can be monitored. This is what we look toward with all health issues. And psychiatric care should be no different. So parity for that care, approaches to that care, embedding a lot of behavioral health care in primary care practices, which is something that we've been doing for a long time. How does it become part of routine primary basic care to help diagnose depression, anxiety, other things? What can be dealt with within the context of that? What are some of the self-help tools that can be used? And what are those psychiatric disorders that need to be diagnosed, that need chronic management, such as the person you mentioned? How do you get that person the right care and the right support team around them? so that monitoring, care, medications, these can just occur like with any other condition. We are far from there, but that actually is an important goal. 
we're very fortunate here in terms of the expertise we have in behavioral health and brain disorders and neurology. I'm very proud of the incredible research that's been done, the work that's being done to provide access to open up virtual care. All of these things are amazing. McLean Psychiatric Hospital, which is renowned throughout the country, excellent departments of psychiatry that we have and our academic medical centers. All of those things are really fabulous. But it gets to that point from the beginning. How do you put all of this together to really deliver the best, most comprehensive care, which is primarily and has to be informed by the patient view, by the patient experience, and embedding in that care the very best of research and innovation so that that highest level of care is immediately translated into the best care for patients. That is our collective challenge as academic healthcare systems, as healthcare systems, as uh, a country. And how do we do that with this financial crisis, crisis in labor, crisis in capacity, crisis in access? So there's a lot of words of crisis in there, but I do feel collectively the work that we're doing as a system, the strategic priorities, the discipline we're bringing to get people together on a common path, that's what you need to do in healthcare systems and also bringing healthcare systems together, partnering between academic healthcare systems, other systems, the state, other not-for-profits, tech companies. There's a lot of partnership opportunities because I guess I would say, as I always do, you can't do it alone. You can't do it alone as a hospital. You can't do it alone as a healthcare system. Those are the key partnerships and relationships that we have to do to really move patient care forward everywhere, actually, in the country and globally as well. I love the focus on partnering and that you mentioned tech companies, that it's not just McLean and other parts of the system, right. but there are government partners, corporate partners, I'm sure, in how companies in the community support technology, but also how are they creatively bringing care closer to the company so that people aren't either stigmatized by mental health or they're providing yoga and wellness. Mm -hmm. For some of us, me included, a little scary to go to the doctor. Mm -hmm. How do you lead in a way that enables these changes to happen and feel energized enough to move the needle, even on the days that are just hard. Hard, yes. So I'll go back to what's the galvanizing principle? Why are people here? How do you bring people together with a common sense of purpose so that they see value in their work? The value in their work really, really matters in the day-to-day -day challenges. So you have to listen to people and engage them in what is it we are trying to accomplish. And that's why I mentioned COVID, because everywhere, from everywhere in the system, came together and said, we have to solve this problem. We're here to solve this problem. So when you start to think about what are the priorities of what you need to do, you have to really focus on patience. You have to focus on what defines people's mission. It's taking care of people. It's bringing the best of science forward. It's taking care of people in the community. It's teaching the next generation. These are things people fundamentally care about, but you have to shape it so that they have a voice. People need to have a voice. They need to feel heard, but they also need to feel that there are principles here 
that we are following and that ultimately they're here for a purpose and that every person here has a role in that. I remember during the pandemic, there was so much focus on how about this group of physicians and this group of people in the ICU, but it's more than that. How about the people who are coming in and bringing in the trays? How about the people who are cleaning the room? How about the people who are fixing up the ventilators so that they work? When you start to broaden out people's jobs here, they're all part of the mission, but they don't see it. They have to understand that everything people do collectively is really all part of the mission. So I would say to you, listen to people, help people understand that they're all part of the mission of what we're trying to do. Focus on patience, focus in, create a safe environment, creating equity, creating a diverse workforce, creating people, creating a, an environment where people feel like they have a purpose, that they're being protected, that they're being cared for themselves. That's incredibly important. And also trying to find out what are those ways people think are ideas where they can feel some things of meaning. Sometimes it's a local thing. It's a celebration of something. It's highlighting a success that someone is doing. And often I'd say it's the small local things that help define people's experience. We are a large company. We are over 82,000 employees here. But what you really look to in the end is, what's that small group you work with? What's your day-to-day -day experience? Who are you talking to? What are they telling you? What are you learning? So I think all those things are part of where you need to go as an organization and what we need to really do to lead during change. People are worried about change. There are a lot of fears. I don't know anyone who hasn't changed things very considerably over the last three years. That was COVID. That was the isolation. That's the job changes. That's the financial challenges. Everyone's been affected. So people are nervous. They're worried. I understand that. But, you know, moving from that collective angst to collective hope and doubling down on mission and purpose, that's really what you need to do. How do you inspire hope when the patients they see may be a little more ill than they used to be? I think the first thing is to acknowledge. You have to acknowledge. Sometimes I'll talk to people in leadership at other organizations, and the, the messages that they're sending are all positive all the time. And there's a lot to be said for positivity, but there's also a lot to be said for reality. So I think it's really important to just acknowledge, acknowledge what's happening. I'll give you a small example of acknowledgement that I think has resonated with people. Workplace violence in healthcare is soaring. There is an incredible amount of rude behavior, bad behavior, emotional abuse, and even physical violence that patients and their families will show toward employees, nursing, people in healthcare. This is a fact. This is a fact. It's most common in the emergency department. You see it throughout the hospital. This is a problem. So, so many patients, that's not them, but there are a number of patients where that's an issue. So we talk about it. It's been pretty much tolerated. Well, it's a patient. It's their family. They've been sitting here. But the kinds of things that are said to people are bad. Again, some of this is actual physical violence. So, you know, one of the things we leaned in on and talked to people about, which is how do you feel safe in that environment? How do you feel listened to with everything that's going on in the world? And that led us to a patient code of conduct that we launched. 
which is basically here are the expectations. We're here to take care of you, but we have so many people here. They're working really hard on your behalf. You need to be respectful. You need to understand that these are people too. The Massachusetts Health Association adopted this. It's a small step, but it's a way of acknowledging reality on the ground for people who are delivering care. It's a way of saying, we are listening to you. This is not the bigger picture you're talking about, about optimism and vision. I'll get to that in a minute. But sometimes it's the things that you do that are very concrete, that acknowledges an issue that people are not willing to acknowledge. And you take positive steps toward that. And you're saying, we're here for you. We hear what you're saying, no matter what it is. And you deserve to be respected and you deserve to be treated well. We're here to make sure that that happens. If a patient or their family violates the code of conduct, do they get ejected? <laughs> well, I wouldn't say ejected, but it is made very clear through a lot of bystander training that we've done and people knowing how to deal with this, that it's not appropriate to do this to a, a person. If someone's violent, that's a different story. But it basically is just reinforcing, I'd call it the rules of civility and make sure people understand that everyone's working really hard. No one needs to be subject to racist comments, sexist comments, abusive statements. It's not tolerated here. And just making that statement, that's often enough. But my point overall is creating a safe environment, creating a place where people can be heard, where their voices can rise up. And it's important to emphasize that leadership in an organization can listen to people who are working here, can respond to what they're hearing, and can make positive changes. That's a really important thing that we need to do. I think overall, positive messages, celebrating ways in which an overall set of priorities will move care forward, will move everyone forward, will take into account the outstanding care that is provided, the excellent research that is being done, understanding what it is we're doing to serve communities. All of these things are incredibly important for people to hear. So I think repeatedly making those points and having people feel that they're part of that, that's an important positive thing too. But I want to balance out listening, acknowledging, and dealing with the realities on the ground that people are experiencing and having concrete ways of responding to them in addition to positive messages of where we're going. Because again, it's the day-to-day -day lived experience that's really important for people. I love both the connection to vision, what I do matters, and I'm safe coming to work and my organization cares enough to take action. Yes. When I say I feel unsafe, someone and all the way up to the CEO, not just my boss down the hall, <laughs> but we are creating an environment that someone will say, don't do that. Exactly. We stand up for each other. We value each other. We value the work we do. And we'll make progress together. That's a beautiful example of what you're doing tactically to move the vision forward. So I just came back from the UAE and was able to see what happened in Dubai and Abu Dhabi over 50 years with vision and money. Yep. And people would say vision and money get you everything. But a lot of people have vision and money and they don't have results. You're delivering results. Help our listeners understand what it is that connects vision to patients having a better experience. 
We have multiple departments of radiology all across the system, different hospitals. Everyone has a department of radiology. These departments of radiology, they could be out in a community hospital. They could have a branch out in a clinic. It could be in an academic medical center. So here's what I learned when I was taking care of patients for many years at Mass General as a subspecialist. There are a lot of components to getting a test done in radiology. You have to go to get the test done. It has to be done by someone who knows what they're doing by a specific protocol. And then you have to have a radiologist who reads that scan and then gives a reading. That's just giving it down to its most simple element. And the patient has to go to that place and then drive home and wait for a result. Sounds simple. Every single hospital had its own radiology department, had its own system, had its own machines, and often had their own protocols. So if I was seeing a patient at Mass General as a subspecialist, I could have a patient who lived 20, 30 miles away, and instead of going to one of our community sites, they would have to drive all the way to Mass General Hospital, drive there, get childcare, take time off from work, come up, get the scan done. Because someone who specialized in that rare disease that I was seeing, they saw hundreds of these films at Mass General. So they had to drive all the way to Mass General and get that film done and be read by that radiologist there so that I could get the result and tell them. Except what if that patient lived all that distance away? Again, not next door. They had to make the whole trip, and then they had to go all the way back. Now, if that scan was ordered by someone, let's say, at Salem Hospital, which is out there in, in a community, they would have to drive all the way to Mass General and then all the way back. But maybe first they went to that local hospital and were told, oh, no, you can't go here. You need to go there. It's very convoluted. It takes a lot of time. It's not patient-friendly, and you're often sending patients to high-cost centers for care. So what's the solution? We took all of the radiology departments and put them under system radiology. So that means that there is enterprise radiology, so that the machines and the protocols are common throughout the entire system, as is the reading system. That was a couple of years' worth of work. What does that mean? It means that if you're out in a hospital, you can go to a community hospital for a routine test. It'll get the same protocol as everywhere else. It'll get read there and you'll go home. Great. But if you have something that has to be read all the way by somebody who's sitting at Mass General or the Brigham, the patient doesn't need to go there anymore. They just get that film transmitted. Okay, that's digital radiology. It gets transmitted to that specialist. We could be at another hospital, 20 miles away, 30 miles away, more. And it's read there. That interpretation goes back. And your doctor locally can tell you what that is. One trip, closer to home, lower cost. You don't need to make that trip anymore. Basically, you get that. And then the image makes the trip, so to speak. You're back home. So that is the power of digital work. It's the power of bringing all of that together. I still have an academic department of radiology at MGH, at Brigham and Women's Hospital. There are still departments. They are all linked through what's called enterprise radiology, doing the same thing in pathology. We're doing the same thing in emergency medicine, same thing in anesthesiology, so that you basically can get the same care no matter where you are in the system. 
Those are concrete things that we're doing to bring the best care, irrespective of where you live. You need to be able to get the best care closer to home at lower cost. And if you need that specialist, obviously you can go see them, but a lot of the times you don't have to. It could be your scans. It could be the pathology information. Maybe it's done virtually. And those are the sorts of things that we actually need to be doing. It sounds easy. And yet dealing with human change, <laughs> I can imagine lots of people were in charge of something and now they're consolidated into a centralized system and they had their way of doing things that they thought was best and all of that. So the human part of making that kind of change is, I assume, significant. It is significant. It did take a number of years. But, you know, I'll say it started with discussions about what made sense and what didn't make sense. What's happening to patients who need to take advantage of that really high degree of tertiary, quaternary, highest level care at Mass General Hospital, at Brigham and Women's Hospital? And the same is true for the three specialty hospitals. You have people who see the rarest of diseases. They see things that nobody else or very few other places see. It's the new therapies. It's the new diagnostics. That is exactly what defines those academic medical centers. But there's so much other care that you do not need to go to a Mass General or a Brigham to get. You can get that care at a community hospital at a local place. And that is why we have to take advantage of the entire system. That's the continuum of care so that you do not have to be going to those two hospitals for all your care and having those 80 patients, whatever, waiting to get into that hospital. If you could distribute care more easily to begin with and have more care done in an ambulatory setting, again, you would accomplish what you need to accomplish in a much easier fashion. I worked with a physician who was delivering laser treatment for folks post-facial cancer, so myofacial stuff. He was one of a handful of people in the country doing that kind of treatment <laughs> and then joined a team of researchers who was looking at 3D printing a device that could be then printed in a rural hospital with a chip that ensured that people didn't, you know, laser themselves to death in their faces. And it's brilliant. The stuff that is, as you point out, through academic medicine, the advances being made that will increase equity because there were people who will never be able to fly to MD Anderson to see a physician, they're going to suffer and they're going to die earlier. And now there are options for folks to have a very different quality of life Yes, because this treatment allows them to then finish the course of radiation treatment. And if you've got cancer in your face, it's likely fairly dire. It is amazing the options as you're pointing to, to make care more accessible to everyone and also make those specialists' time available for the people who absolutely need it. Having someone like this, when there are four of them in the country, they need to be available for the cases that require that kind of treatment. So Maureen, you just made a beautiful and compelling case for everything that we're trying to do. So I love hearing that. But that is exactly right. How do you use technology? How do you use new ways of thinking to deliver that highly specialized care to all those people who need it, who can't come to one of our specialty hospitals or clinics or services? How do you use technology? How do you use access? 
How do you use digital platforms to get the care out there and then use or save those actual physical facilities for those people who really need to be there? That is really the best of what we need to accomplish. And then how do you take the routine care, and we know how to do it, we just need to do it, and move it out closer in the community hospitals. Community hospitals are so important to the future of medicine, as are ambulatory sites, as are care at home. The concept that care begins and ends in a hospital, that's a concept of our own doing. Care needs to begin and end in the home. And that's what I mean by the continuum of care. If we can provide better care in the home or right around the corner, and some of that is digital delivery, some of that is, and again, directly interfacing with a patient portal, whatever that looks like, and then moving outward, you go to a community hospital or an ambulatory setting for that care that you can't have delivered in the home. And then you go to one of these academic medical centers for that care that you've just talked about that needs to either be provided at an academic medical center or by those specialists there who can then deliver care by other means and spread that care out, democratize that care, if you will, throughout the town, throughout the city, throughout the state, and actually throughout the country. And then push on care back in the home. You don't need or shouldn't need to go to a hospital or stay in a hospital for a lot of the care that can be delivered at home. So this is something we're also really pushing on. Care is better when it's at home, but you need to have the right people providing the care. You need to have the technology that enables the care. You need a lot, but we've learned a lot so that we can deliver care at home. That is much better in terms of patient satisfaction. People want to be in their homes. So we need to create that patient experience in the home so that they can safely and equitably get that care done there. And what a beautiful summary of everything you stand for. Thank you for being the CEO that you are and making the changes that will allow all of the things you've just talked about, from moving care toward home, making it more cost-effective, making it more equitable across demographic groups and across locations. Where would people who want to learn more about you or from you learn? So we have MassGeneralBrigham.org. That is a website to go to. There's a lot of work there just talking about who we are and what we do. That's a good start, I think. Thank you so much for your time and for the impact you're making for your patients, for your clinicians and staff, and for the rest of us who benefit from the academic medicine that ripples through our country and through our world. Thank you very much, Maureen. It's been a great pleasure. And to our listeners, you can follow us on LinkedIn and you can follow me, Maureen Metcalf. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.